most of the models, I would say even more than 90% of the models assume people are, are rational. But then uh, there's several experiments in 1970s, even some in 1960s and later as well, that show that sometimes in some contexts, people are not behaving like that. It's really not possible to explain how consumers are behaving based on this utility or value principle that I mentioned the, before. Well, hello there, this is Milena, and welcome to another episode of Retail Mavericks Podcast. This episode is a part of our Academia Focus series, and for these episodes, I will be joined by my colleague and co-host, Dr. Alvaro Flores. In this series, we're going to bring you the most interesting and relevant research areas and the academics behind them. At Highbury, we are passionate about bringing new thinking, ideas, and technologies to life. We believe this can change thoughts, attitudes, and ultimately our understanding of the world we live in. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Hivery. Hivery is the pioneer in hyperlocal retailing. And today, it is my great pleasure to introduce Dr. Gerardo Berbeglia, an expert in data analytics and operations management. Gerardo teaches operations optimization and decision-making, and supply chain analytics in the full-time Master of Business Analytics program at the University of Melbourne. Gerardo's research has been published in leading journals and conference proceedings. So without any further ado, we'll jump right in with Gerardo telling us a little bit more about his academic and industry background, as well as what his current area of research is. I come from Argentina, so there I studied uh, computer science at the University of Buenos Aires, and it was a six-year degree, kind of a combination between a master and a bachelor degree, and I had the opportunity to actually work on different areas of computer science, ranging from mathematical logic, computer simulations of satellites, and, and operations research optimizations. So then I decided to go forward in that direction in operations research and I got the scholarship to go to Montreal to Canada to do a PhD on, on this. My work on operations research at that point in the PhD was on routing problems, problem known as pickup and delivery. The idea is that you have many requests from people. They want to say, I want to be picked up from this site and go to this other place. You can think about Uber now, but also it was for handicapped people and people requiring some special care so need to go to the hospital, etc. And the decision maker, what it has to do is take all these requests and optimize the route and the sequence at which they're going to pick up and deliver all these people. So that was my starting point in operation research. But then I, I joined a startup company in Montreal after my PhD that was doing revenue management software. And they were selling this software to air carriers and railway firms in, in North America and Europe. One of the things I really like about this new topic for me at that point, which was revenue management, was that one can apply like well-established optimization techniques, like the ones I learned along the years. But also there's a human behavior aspect. If you show these products or if you show these options, if you show these prices to people, what people are going to do, right? what people are going to select. And that is kind of connected with the other fields like psychology or economics. I really enjoy uh, this connection between OR and, and these topics in revenue management. 
I guess, Gerardo, one of the most frequent critique that models usually get is that models assume rationality of individuals. So can you tell us about modeling frameworks that can help explain some of the irrationalities in human behavior? Most of the models, I would say even more than 90% of the models assume people are, are rational. The reason why they do that is because it's much, much easier to model individuals that are rational. And typically what uh, the models do is they say, well, each person will have a, assign a certain value to each of the alternatives. And then based on the alternative options, the person will select the one that has the highest value for them. And that's how people choose in those models. One thing that happens when you have these models like this is that whenever you add a new alternative to the, the set of alternatives uh, that people can choose, the number of people that will buy a previously put alternative cannot increase, right? So I, I give you an example. If you, if you have a restaurant and then you have two main dishes, one is fish and the other one is chicken, so let's suppose that 40% of the people choose fish and 60% choose chicken. And now suppose that the restaurant says, oh, I'm going to add a new option. I'm going to add a vegetarian dish. So then those models will say, well, if you add a vegetarian dish, the number of people that will choose fish will no longer be 40%. It will be less than 40%, but it can no, never go higher. But then uh, there's several experiments in 1970s, even some in 1960s, and later as well, that show that sometimes in some contexts, people are not behaving like that. It's really not possible to explain how consumers are behaving based on this utility or value principle that I mentioned the, before. So there's a lot of interest now in, in constructing mathematical models that can incorporate these behaviors that are considered to be irrational based on that uh, utility principle. So that's an interesting new topic in my area. Gerardo, can you dive a little bit deeper into what you are currently working on? Yeah, so I'm currently working a lot in studying choice models and constructing new choice models. So a choice model is essentially a, a mathematical framework that can predict what people will choose based on what options they have to choose from. It has a lot of applications in public policy, but also in retail, for example. In retail, you go to the supermarket and the supermarket has a certain number of coffees and then people will decide which coffee to buy if they buy one based on what you offer. I'm working in models that can incorporate the impact of social influence. And I give you one example of that. So we imagine a newspaper online has all these articles. Imagine that now they show in the, the online version of this website, they say, well, this article was very popular, this article was less popular, etc." So that might have an effect on what people read. So the idea of showing how popular the articles are will in the future affect their own popularity. So there's kind of an interesting feedback loop there, which is very relevant for a newspaper. So I'm trying to work on models that account for this feedback loop. Can you tell us what experiments have been taking place lately or that are known to be happening in this area of research and perhaps what basic concepts have been established as a result? Going back to this idea of irrationality and rationality, and most models assume consumers are rational and people are rational. One of the effects is known as this compromise effect, which says that people tend to choose the, the middle option, right? So if you show something that is 
very cheap and lower quality and something that is super high quality and quite expensive, the middle option, the one that is reasonable quality and, and not so expensive and not so cheap, that one has more preference. So choosing the middle option is something that people tend to do. And this is often said that it's easier to justify and less likely to be criticized and also uh, is more consistent with loss aversion. And this compromise effect, you can design experiments to show that you cannot explain this based on this utility principle or based on that uh, rationality. And another set of effects is known as the decoy effect. Uh, the number of people that will choose a particular product, uh, you can make increase that fraction of people by showing an inferior product that you add to the choices, but that is uh, similar. Adding one extra product to the, the offer set may sometimes increase or boost one of the products that was there in the, in the set. That's a really helpful explanation of some of the effects that we can observe that sort of defy certain rationality assumptions. So, Gerardo, what do you think are the possible applications of understanding this kind of phenomena in the future? This is quite interesting on its own, but it also has a lot of applications. It's quite important to understand how people choosing uh, options from several stakeholders. Right? So if you are a government, for example, or you are in the public health system, and trying to understand these behavioral effects can play a huge role in designing public health policies, like, for example, now with COVID, you need to try to promote people to get vaccinated and well, which options do you have to show them and which uh, alternatives they have that have different vaccines and, and different places to get vaccinated. So understanding these choices could be quite relevant to induce people to get vaccinated or, for example, to promote organ donations. If the default is not to donate the organs, people could be quite dramatically different. The default is that you are going to donate and you have to actually change it if you don't want to donate an organ. So that's for, for governments, but also in retail, for example, in retail firms can use this idea of understanding well how consumers make their choices. It will help firms to provide a more refined offer set of, of products. And I guess one should point out that people in general may show these behavioral effects which are kind of irrational, but it's not always the case. In some contexts or some categories, they are more likely to show these, these effects, like the decoy effect and all that, whereas in others, it's less likely. I recently read a paper that they gathered transactional data from, from supermarkets, and they showed that this decoy effect and compromise effects was much more common in the category of coffee than in other categories, like, for example, purchasing sugar or, or flour. So can you... Tell us a little bit more on the classical models that come from utility theory and maybe some of the attempts to sort of take this phenomena into account. Maybe we can touch a little bit on the rational ones so to set the scene and see, for example, how we can modify them or propose completely different models to, to try to accommodate the rationalities. Just to, to have a little bit more detail uh, in this conversation. As I mentioned before, one of these kind of the classical assumptions is that consumers or people assign a value to each of their options. Like, for example, you have a particular person that says, this option A, I will assign a value of 5. This option B, I will assign a value of 6. This option C, I will assign a value of 10. 10 is bigger than 5 and 6, so I will prefer this option C if it is available. And if it is not available, I would prefer option B because it was a second one with higher value. 
And if that one is not available, I'll prefer the, the last option. So the classical uh, model, we say, look, I've shown you some assortment of alternatives, some subset of alternatives, and each person will select the highest alternative in the ranking. So that's the very general framework for models that are rational. Now, one way to tweak this and to be able to explain these behaviors that are not necessarily rational is to say that some people, instead of selecting the highest one in their, their list, they will select the second in their list. One way to think about it is that uh, this value that we were mentioning is not necessarily how much value they get, but it's kind of an attribute of the, the products or the alternative. For example, some people uh, like very bitter beers, uh, or uh, but not so bitter, uh, right? So they like some bitterness in the beers, but not the highest bitterness. If they rank it by bitterness, they might select the second one that is more bitter, but not the, the strongest one. Another ones are the multinomial logic, which is quite classical in, in marketing. And there are several tweaks similar to the one I just described to actually extend it and to be able to explain this irrational behavior in consumers. Gerardo, can you demonstrate the differences between rational and irrational models? So rational models have a particular property that is whenever you show to, to individuals a subset of products, let's suppose you show them 10 different alternatives and they had to pick one out of these 10. Now, if you add a new alternative, an 11th alternative to this offer set, the number of people that will now buy an alternative that was already in the set, meaning one of these one out of 10 that were originally in the set, cannot increase, right? So if 70% of the people have chosen alternative one, when you add the 11th alternative, uh, the amount of people that will choose alternative one cannot increase. It will actually be reduced. So that's typically what happens in practice. Uh, but these experiments uh, suggest that in many contexts, this doesn't happen. Right? So it's quite uh, bizarre, but at the same time, it's something that is a fact of, of how humans uh, behave. Lately, there is a field that is sort of taking over a lot of other industries as well, and is AI and deep neural networks and also machine learning. So... Do you think that eventually AI and deep neural networks uh, will take over like the operation research industry or it will be always be a mix between the two? And why do you hold that impression? What a nice thing about these models of operations research is that in some way they are simple and they have these parameters and the, the structure has some meaning, always have a simple meaning. Whereas these AI and neural network or in general machine learning models have really much more number of parameters and sometimes it's quite difficult to interpret the parameters and the, the results. We have definitely seen an impressive improvement on what AI can do in problems of optimization. Example that we discussed before is this idea of choice modeling, right? So choice modeling dates back from 1960s and they have been always classically defined, meaning that they are simple. The parameters can be easily assigned a concrete meaning. People in marketing have used them. People in OR, people in economics have used them. But in the last few years, if you go to the current papers, now you see a lot of novel choice models that are based on, on machine learning techniques. And they're quite different, right? So they have definitely many more 
parameters. And they show through experiments that some of them are, are really very good. So yes, it's, it's an interesting question. My guess is that in the future, we won't see a takeover as you, you said uh, as a question before. But what I suspect will happen is that we're going to see models that are hybrid, right? So one example could be that you have a two-stage model in the first stage, machine learning takes place, and these machine learning techniques will gather some information from the huge data sets and will create some parameters. And those parameters then will be used for the second stage part, which will be an optimization model based on OR techniques. They will take those parameters as input and they will solve a classical optimization problem using those, uh, those inputs. That's what I, I think will happen. We'll see more and more of those things. Yeah, I think that in the short term, I think it will be always difficult to just rely on deep neural network structure without the transparency that some of these OR model in, in many occasions offer. So speaking of applications of using operations research, what markets can benefit from using it? Yeah, well, I guess all markets can benefit from uh, OR. And this is not something really new. What I'm saying is because OR has a very long history, over 100 years already. And it has been used and is currently successfully being applied to many things like logistics, supply chain, scheduling, project management. If you think about networks, uh, network design or the internet, for example, resource allocation, how to allocate resources and routing, etc. So much OR is quite old in that sense. But I guess the novel applications of OR are those that involve the modeling of human behavior. Going back to choice modeling, choice model began in the 20th century, and it was mainly for people studying economics and psychology and marketing. But since then, since early 2000s, operations research field got very interested in those models. They actually uh, use them to solve optimization-related questions about them, right? So how to optimize different things, how to optimize different assortments or different prices based on those uh, models. So I, I guess the, the markets that can benefit from R are, are really, really wide, and many people are using them you know, all over the industries. So, Gerardo, how widespread would you say the use is of OR models, and is there a particular innovation or development happening in the space that would allow more industries to benefit from incorporating such models into their operations? Yeah, it's a good question, Milena. I, I, I don't know exactly if there is kind of a key thing, but definitely the fact that now software is becoming cheaper to build and you can actually get good software in optimization that is really, really good. And some of them are even free. And if they are not free, they're quite cheap compared to, let's say, 25 years ago. And the other aspect, I guess, is the, the amount of data that firms have. Like, so now most retailers will have everything in computers and they have access to transactional data on a daily basis and monthly basis, etc. Not only the, the, the sales, but also the type of sale. I mean, they can do a lot of pre-processing of this data, which before was much more complicated. But now uh, the access to data will improve the chances that people will use OR. Hybrid's motto is actually data has a better idea. So we're really happy to see overall data improving both in quantity and quality, which allow us to perform better predictions. 
And I fully agree with you that optimization software compared to even 10 to 15 years ago has completely enabled things that we were not able to do before in reasonable time, which unlocked a lot of potential solutions to problems in the R industry that were prohibited before. And not only in the computing time frame, but also on the necessary algorithmic improvements and sort of abstraction layers to pose the problems that facilitate the, the, the use of these softwares. Um, maybe this can be a little bit of self-promoting, uh, but I had the luck to have Gerardo in my PhD supervisory panel, where we work in quite a few interesting problems. But maybe instead of focusing on the past, we can focus on the things that we are still currently working together. Can you tell us a little bit more on the refine assortment optimization? So I had uh, Alvaro as uh, one of my previous PhD students. It was uh, very nice to have him. And we worked together for several years. And now, as Alvaro, you mentioned, uh, we're working now still. It's interesting that sometimes companies could offer uh, different versions of kind of the same product in a way to make sure that more people will, will actually be able to get it. So the idea of refine is to actually be able to twist, twist a bit the products that we are offering and sometimes uh, modify their attributes in a way that will increase the amount of people that will purchase them and at the same time provide higher revenues for the firm, right? So this is a win-win situation in this case. In closing, I think it would be interesting to hear your opinion regarding how decision makers can enrich their knowledge about technical aspects of operations research to simplify and smoothen the process of actual decision-making when communicating with different stakeholders. So, in other words, what can help decision-makers who typically have business backgrounds make better decisions based on the technology that is currently available or is in development? It's a difficult question. It's very, very general. One of the things we train in, in our uh, master's, so I'm teaching in I'm part of the Malibu Business School Master of Business Analytics. So this is a master program of one year that has a lot of technical components as the one I'm teaching to my students, optimization, supply chain, analytics, etc. But it also has a lot of business type of courses. We'll try to enhance and, and improve the communications, how to deal with different stakeholders and try to move on on this idea of moving towards a more evidence-based decision-making and more quantitative decision-making, etc. They were quite successful many times to show to their, uh, their bosses the value of operations research and the value of creating models. And they were able to successfully to apply several of the models that we typically teach in, in class and some, of course, some extensions in their own business world and seeing this in many service operations in oil and gas and seeing this in healthcare and recently as well in, in consulting. The discrete choice model theory is a really exciting area of research that mixes economics, sociology, psychology and computer science. This area has a lot of room to grow and intermingle with other fields such as deep learning as we briefly mentioned in this episode. We will keep bringing academics and experts in this field and revenue management in general to try to show what the futures of operations research looks like. Thank you for listening until the end of this podcast. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. Stay tuned and till the next time, everyone.